All right. Hey there, everyone. Welcome back to our quick hit series. This is Nicholas Olick and Hannah Langdell, a Duke Plastic Surgery residents with the Resident Review Podcast. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about a couple different topics in hand surgery, kind of running the gamut from replantation to Dupertrins uh, to some miscellaneous hand and vascular disorders. Um, Hannah, do you want to start with some replantation talk? Sure. Thanks, Nick. So we'll start by talking about some of the indications for replantation. And these include replantation of the thumb, if the patient has multiple amputated digits, if there's amputation of the finger distal to the FDS insertion, which would be zone one, if there are proximal injuries, you know, on the proximal hand, um, and these should really always be attempted in a child, except for if there's a very severely crushed injury, or of course, if there's another life-threatening injury that would preclude a replantation. So the contraindications for replantation are if there's a single digit that's amputated proximal to FDS or an injury in multiple segments. The only true contraindication for thumb replantation is if there's other acute life-threatening injuries Otherwise, it should be attempted. Um, and then the rest of it's really a conversation with the patient. And you can talk to them if they are someone who is a manual laborer who would want to return to work quickly. And in general, amputated digits can tolerate cold ischemia of up to 24 hours. And if this is warm ischemic time, it's about six to 12 hours. However, proximal injuries, because it includes more muscle, can tolerate a cold ischemic time of up to 12 hours and really six hours of warm ischemic time. The mechanism of injury is the most predictable factor for success in replantation. And other factors that we've been tested on are psychotic disorders, peripheral vascular disease, and electrolyte imbalances are all risk for replantation failure. And repair of two or more dorsal veins is positively correlated with digit survival. Now we'll talk about a couple of signs that are relative contraindications for replantation. So the red line sign, you can see this with an avulsion injury along the ulnar and radial aspects of the digit. And this is caused by traction of the neurovascular bundles. And then you can see a ribbon sign in uh, amputated digits where the neurovascular bundle will appear as coiled or twisted ribbon uh, merging from the segment. And then next we'll talk about ring avulsion injuries. So there are three types. Type one is uh, designated by adequate circulation. In type two, the circulation is inadequate and you need vessel repair. And then type three is a complete degloving injury and amputation is generally required. So for type three avulsion injuries of the ring finger, you use the long ring uh, ulnar digital artery for the revascularization. And the most successful avulsion replantations involve resection of the injured vessels and uh, use of vein grafts. So just remember that amputations can be distracting injuries. They're often something the patient first notices, the provider first notices, but remember to perform proper workup of all trauma patients prior to replantation. This includes C-spine imaging. So this is important to remember both on our in-service and when we're in the trauma bay. Nick, do you want to go through some of the operative techniques for replantation? Sure. So there's a, a couple different uh, specifics to talk about in our operative technique for replants. Um, first is the order of fixation. 
there's a couple different variations to this, but typically we start with the bony fixation. That can be either with a plate or K wires. Uh, then you do tendon repairs, artery repair, vein repair, and then nerve repair. Uh, if this uh, is a late presenting injury, you may want to consider arterial shunting um, with a silastic shunt prior to the rest of the repairs. Uh, you want to make sure the amputated limb is cool until the microvascular anastomosis is completed. If we have multiple digits that are amputated, like we mentioned, that is an indication for replantation. And there's a question about whether you should do a structure-by-structure structure repair versus digit-by-digit. Digit. Um, and it's been shown that structure-by-structure uh, structure is uh, typically more successful and starting with the bone first, then tendon, artery, nerve, and then veins. If there's an extensive zone of injury or avulsion mechanism injury, use of vein grafts permits anastomosis outside of the zone of injury and increases the chance for success. And heterotopic replantation is a, uh, another technique, and this is, can be used for multiple cross injuries or segmental injuries of the thumb. As far as our post-op protocol, most hand surgeons will do some kind of post-op anticoagulation anti therapy, and the evidence from this really comes from the microsurgery literature. Uh, it's been shown that 80% of thromboses occur in the first two post-operative days, and intraluminal heparin irrigation uh, at the time of replantation has no proven benefit. If you see venous congestion immediately after replantation, uh, you can take off the dressing first, and then considering loosening sutures, and then leeches after that, kind of similar to any, any flap that we would be looking at. Uh, and then just digging into kind of some miscellaneous amputation and uh, replantation facts, as far as composite graft, or a non-surgical replantation of amputated finger, this is really only possible between in young kids between ages two and six. Uh, in adults, this may be used, but the the segment that you're re, quote replanting um, is usually just used more as a biologic dressing. Uh, when we talk about amputating digits, ray amputations are typically the most aesthetic. And if you're doing a ray amputation of the ring finger, the small and long finger gap can be closed by suturing the deep intervolar plate ligaments or the deep intermetacarpal ligaments. We've been tested on uh, amputations at the wrist in the past and specifically on wrist disarticulation versus a transradial amputation. Typically a wrist disarticulation pre preserves the distal radial ulnar joint and improves forearm rotation, although it may be more difficult to fit a prosthesis. Uh, this as opposed to a uh, transradial amputation, which leads to some limb length discrepancy and patients will be more likely to abandon their prosthesis with this. Uh, just a little bit about TMR or targeted muscle reinnervation. Uh, this provides better prosthesis control by the input from the median ulnar nerves in the upper extremity. So as far as a technique for TMR, the resected nerves like the median and ulnar nerve, uh, the residual nerves can be co-acted to nerve branches to remaining muscles like the pectoral muscles and the deltoid. Then transcutaneous EMG detectors can be positioned over these reinnervation sites, can detect nerve signals and power those prosthesis. And finally, when we have a uh, amputation um, distal to the elbow, at least five to 10 centimeters of length distal to the elbow is required for elbow function. Uh, now we're going to move into the nail bed. We're going to start with some anatomy and, term and terminology. So the perionicheum, this is the entire kind of nail bed and nail plate structure. Uh, the perionicheum is the lateral skin surrounding the nail bed and the nail plate. The hyponicheum is the junction of the nail bed and the fingertip skin beneath the distal margin of the nail. And the eponychium is the dorsal skin just proximal to the junction of the nail plate and the dorsal skin. The lunula is the white arch just distal to the eponychium that can be seen uh, through the nail plate. 
The germinal matrix is the more proximal nail bed. This lies underneath the epinychium, and the sterile matrix is more distal. A little bit more about the anatomy. The relationship of the digital nerves and the digital arteries are something that we get tested on and something that's important uh, clinically as well. Uh, the digital nerves are deep to the digital arteries in the palm, but become superficial in the digits. And these nerves branch dorsally just distal to the DIP. The digital arteries have two or three terminal branches, uh, which branch at the base of the nail fold and the level of the lenula. Hannah, do you want to dig into some of these fingertip injuries? Great. So we'll first talk about a subungual hematoma. So these are often consults that we'll get in the ED. And generally, if the hematoma makes up greater than 50% of the nail, you should consider trepanation or removal of the nail bed. Uh, you can use cautery, an 18-gauge needle, or even a punch biopsy. Um, and oftentimes, once you take off the nail, you may see a nail bed laceration. And the laceration repair can be performed with chromic sutures or dermabond. And there's been previous literature that shows that dermabond is significantly quicker and their equivalent outcomes. So for sterile matrix reconstruction, you can use uh, split grafting from the great toe. And when the germinal matrix is involved, you will need a full thickness graft. So next we'll talk about different nail deformities. So first is non-adherence of the nail. And this is the most common post-traumatic defect and treatment is scar excision and primary closure versus grafting. Split nail or nail ridge is a ridge or longitudinal scar in the germinal or sterile matrix. Again, if it involves the sterile matrix, it may require split thickness nail bed grafting and the germinal matrix will require, will require full thickness graft. Um, and this is usually from the second toe. So hook nail, this is pronounced volar curvature of the nail from loss of bony support under the nail. And it can be caused by pulling the nail bed over the tip of the distal phalanx during repair. So th something to really keep in mind when we're in the ED. So the treatment is release of contracted tissues, return the nail bed to the normal position, replace soft tissue, uh, either with a V to I flap or a cross finger flap. A pincer or trumpet nail deformity, this is excess transverse curvature of the nail and pinching of soft tissue of the distal fingertip. You treat with removal of the nail plate, you elevate the nail bed from the sides of the distal phalanx, and then you can perform dermal grafts, which are placed under the lateral and medial portions of the nail bed. One other nail deformity is associated with psoriatic arthritis. And here you'll see crumbling of the nail plate, leukonychia, and onchiolysis. The next we'll talk about soft tissue defects of the fingertip and how you treat them. So first, if the wound is less than about a centimeter to a centimeter and a half, you can allow the wound to heal by secondary intention. Uh, this has the best recovery of sensation and the dressing should include weekly semi-occlusive dressing like Tegaderm and daily hydrogen peroxide. Oh, wait. The dressings are a uh, weekly semi-occlusive dressing like Tegaderm and daily hydrogen peroxide can limit wound healing and cause drying out. So while some of the patients might feel like this is, um, they want something done, you just have to reassure them that with these small injuries, it's really best to treat with dressing changes. So when you talk about skin grafting for the fingertip, the reinnervation is poor, um, but protective sensation may return if you do a full thickness skin graft. So V to Y advancement, these, this option uh, allows sensation and is a vascularized 
advancement flap. And it's useful for defects less than a centimeter, and you can use bilateral V to Y flaps in transverse or lateral oblique defects. A homodigital island flap raises the skin and fat uh, over one uh, nerve vascular bundle, and that can be advanced over the distal pulp defect of the finger. And you need to make sure that the patient has the contralateral nerve vascular bundle intact in order to perform this. A reverse homodigital island flap is a distally based flap to repair fingertip injuries. And the key, of the, the key for this flap is that the pedicle is based on the contralateral digital artery, and it provides immediate near normal sensibility. A cross finger flap is useful for large volar injuries. It's elevated from the adjacent finger on the uh, dorsum of the middle phalanx, just dorsal to the peritoneum. And then a pedicle transfer is performed to an adjacent, to an adjacent finger, followed by inset and then division at about eight to 10 days. However, you uh, should note that the sensibility for a cross finger flap is poor. A reverse cross finger flap is used for dorsal defects. A full thickness skin, uh, full thickness skin is elevated and retracted away from the digit with the defect. The subcutaneous tissue is elevated as the flap and transposed into the defect, and the and then the full thickness skin is replaced in the original position. I think for this one, looking at a picture at least helps me to kind of determine what's a cross finger and reverse cross finger. Um, so I would advise looking at a picture for this one. A header digital island flap or a littler flap requires violation of an unaffected normal digit, typically the ulnar aspect of the long or ring finger. And this is used for ulnar thumb pulp defects and requires cortical relearning. A thenar flap is used for large volar oblique injuries in the index and middle fingers. The skin and sub are elevated over the palm and inset, and then flap division occurs at 10 to 14 days. Next, we'll go through uh, thumb reconstruction options. So the level of the defect guides the reconstruction. So for distal third defects, the goal is to preserve length. So again, if the defect is less than a centimeter and a half and there's no exposed bone, this can heal by secondary intention. If there is greater than 1.5 centimeters, you can consider a full thickness skin graft. So then if bone is exposed, common flaps are the Moberg flap, the cross finger flap, and FDMA. So the Moberg flap is for volar distal thumb defects up to two centimeters. The mid-lateral lines are incised on either side of the thumb, capturing the neurovascular bundles. And you should splint the patient in flexion for two to three weeks. And the most common complication is an extension uh, def deficit at the IP joint. I think A we're pretty commonly tested on the, uh, the size of the defect for, for this flap and when you can use a Moberg flap. It's definitely a test favorite. So good to remember that for something two centimeters or less, you can use this flap and thumb. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Um, so the cross finger flap you can use for a little bit bigger, up to two to three centimeters, but remember that this is insensate. And then really for your larger dorsal defects, so dorsal defects up to about four centimeters, you can use an FDMA flap. And this is based off the first dorsal metacarpal artery, which is a branch of the radial artery. Uh, branches of the superficial radial nerve provide sensation for this flap, and it does require some degree of cortical relearning. Now for middle third defects of the thumb, uh, still length restoration is the primary goal. There are several options. First, you can have a relative length increase with 
deepening of the web space with procedures like skin grafting or Z-plasty and to have an absolute length increase. Uh, you can do a metacarpal lengthening procedure or an osteoplastic reconstruction with bone graft wrapped around like a groin flap. So that's an also a good option. Uh, for proximal third defects, this is essentially a total thumb loss. So options include policization and a microsurgical toe-to-thumb transfer. So we'll go through a little bit about policization. And this is somewhat outside the scope of the in-service, but they do ask, you know, what joint of the index finger becomes what. So we'll go through that quickly. So it's a go-to option when CMC reconstruction is required. So for policization, the index MCP becomes the thumb CMC. The index PIP becomes the thumb MCP. The index DIP becomes the thumb IP. And then for the tendons, the EDC of the index becomes the APL. The dorsal interossei becomes the abductor pollicis brevis. The pulmonary interossei become the adductor pollicis. And then EIP becomes EPL. And then another option, like we mentioned, was a, a toe-to-thumb transfer, which I'm still waiting on a, a patient that we can try this on. Haven't convinced anyone yet. But it's a flat-based off of the first dorsal metatarsal artery, which is a branch of the dorsalis pedis. And this is the dominant blood supply to both the first and second metatarsal. And there's several different options based on the level of amputation. For a proximal phalanx uh, shaft, Amputation, you can perform a wraparound toe transfer versus a great toe transfer. For the distal half of the metacarpal, um, usually people will choose the great toe. And for a proximal half of the metacarpal, you can consider using the second toe. So that concludes uh, kind of all of our talks about amputations and fingertip injuries. Nick, do you want to talk about Dupuytren's? Yeah, sure. Uh, another tough topic that tends to show up on the exam very frequently. Um, and then we actually see in clinic a lot on our hand rotation. So definitely good to review. Uh, so Dupuytren's disease uh, is when normal fascial structures in the palm and digits become diseased cords and can lead to contractures. This is thought to be an autosomal dominant disorder, uh, most commonly seen in white males with a, a family history of this disease. And it's also associated with plantar fibromatosis and Peyronie's disease. The, the ring finger is the most commonly affected digit, followed by the small finger. As far as Dupuytren's pathophysiology, myofibroblast proliferation leads to type 3 collagen deposition, and this is responsible for cord formation. There's typically three stages um, that we see in this disease. Stage one, skin pits are formed, and you see a loss of the normal architecture. In stage two, you may see a nodule and cord formation without contracture. And stage three is a mature cord with contracture. Now, the anatomy becomes really important with Dupuytren's disease. And this is another one that I think it's helpful to look at a diagram of the normal fascial distribution in the palm and then kind of see what cord becomes uh, develops from these structures. So again, the normal fascial bands become diseased cords. Um, the normal fascial structures that encase the neurovascular bundles in the finger are the Cleland's and Grayson's ligaments, the lateral digital sheet, and the retrovascular band. Uh, let's go through some of the cords that develop and kind of where they arise from. The pretendinous cord arises from the pretendinous band in the palm. This is the most common cord in uh, Dupuytren's. This is responsible for MCP flexion deformity when contracture forms. The central cord uh, is an extension of the pretendinous cord from the palm to the digit, and this causes PIP contracture. 
The spiral chord arises from a couple of different bands, the pre-tennis band, the spiral band, the lateral digital sheet, and the basin ligament. And important to remember that uh, Cleland's ligament is not involved, commonly tested point. Uh, the spiral cord will cause PIP contracture, and this can actually displace the neurovascular structures proximally, superficially, and towards the midline. So that's important to remember uh, during dissection uh, in the OR. The retrovascular cord causes a DIP contracture, and the natatory cord arises from the natatory ligament, which runs transversely along the MCPs. And this causes a web space shape change V distribution. Uh, some surgical indications. Uh, we talk about the tabletop test, and this is when you ask the patient to place their hand flat on a table. And if they're unable to do this due to contracture, that's thought to be uh, an easy way to assess if the patient would benefit from surgery. Um, being a little more precise, MCP flexion greater than 30 degrees uh, or any PIP contracture involvement is another indication for surgery. And PIP contracture is the strongest predictor, predictor of re-intervention following needle, needle aponeurotomy, which is a treatment we'll talk about shortly. So in terms of treatments, uh, non-operative treatment is typically not very effective for these patients. Um, you can use steroids for isolated painful nodules. Um, and you may try some dynamic extension splinting, um, but most patients uh, will go on for, to uh, one of these other uh, treatment options. Another one is uh, collagenase injections or Zyaflex, and this is used to correct MP contracture. Uh, PIP contracture has a high rate of complications, particularly if you try to use this in the small finger. So this is injection of Clostridium histolyticum, uh, followed by manual extension 24 hours after injection. And you do this to address one cord at a time. And this is indicated for adult patients with finger contractures and a palpable cord. Rupture of the FDP can occur with injection of collagenase um, at the PIP, especially in the small finger. That's why this is dangerous. And of no kind of something we've been tested on before, there are no reported cases of arterial or nerve injuries with this technique. Um, if you have paresthesias or numbness, it's best to observe this for eight weeks prior to intervention. The next kind of step up is a... Uh, needle uh, fasciotomy. And this is used for mild MCP contractures. And again, not great for PIP contracture. Uh, needle fasciotomy with lipofilling. Um, this works by reducing myofibroblast contact and inhibits myofibroblast proliferation. When lipofilling is added to a needle fasciotomy, equivalent results, the results are comparable to operative intervention with a limited fasciectomy. Op op option for operative intervention are partial fasciectomy, open palm fasciectomy and total or radical fasciectomy, which involves the use of skin grafts after the skin is excised. Uh, PIP contracted treatment involves release of the checkered ligaments of the PIP joint, which are extensions of the volar plate, followed by accessory collateral ligament and then manipulation. And the most common complication um, for fasciectomy is a hematoma formation. Recurrence is uh, a common complication. Um, and we think about different timeframes of uh, when these cords are likely to recur. Currents is thought to be 30% at one to two years out, 15% at three to five years, 10% at five to 10 years, and less than 10% after 10 years. And CPRS, um, which we, and hematoma um, are also additional complications. So moving on to some uh, vascular diseases and some other miscellaneous uh, upper extremity syndromes. Um, we'll start with scleroderma or uh, primary systemic sclerosis. Uh, patients may present with shiny skin and joint stiffness, um, and this can lead to some alteration of the fingertips associated with Raynaud's phenomenon and Crest syndrome. 
Tip ulcerations from scleroderma are treated conservatively with debridement and limited resection of bone. If this fails to respond, then amputation uh, may be indicated or digital sympathectomy. Raynaud's disease can be primary or idiopathic or secondary um, due to a known cause like an autoimmune disorder. This is a vasospastic disorder with triphasic color of skin changes and symptoms may be present for two years prior to making this diagnosis. This is thought to be due to a hyperactive sympathetic activity with an increase in plasma endothelium and alpha-2 receptors. First-line treatment for these patients is a calcium channel blocker like nifedipine, followed by Botox or digital sympathectomy uh, around the radial, ulnar, and digital arteries if there are ulcers or ischemic changes. And bo Botox, uh, the mechanism in, in this case is different than we've in other uses. This is the inhibition of Rho and Rho kinase activity. And we want to inject uh, perivascularly in the palm, 10 units for each digit. Um, next, moving on to hypothenar hammer syndrome. And this is thrombosis of the ulnar artery in Guyon's canal. And this is often secondary to repetitive trauma seen in construction workers or mechanics. Um, and these are people who typically use their hypothenar eminence, quote, as a hammer during work, which is where this got this um, name from. This cause is damage to the ulnar artery and may result in a true aneurysm um, of the artery at, at this level. This can present as paresthesias and decrease in temperature um, in an ulnar distribution in the hand, as well as ischemia of the digits. Diagnosis is made with angiography, and you may see tortuosity of the ulnar artery. First-line treatment is medical management, um, including calcium channel blockers, antiplatelet uh, agents, as well as encouraging cessation of smoking and avoiding further trauma. Um, there are surgical options, and you would go directly to surgery if the uh, digital brachial index is less than 0.7. Options for surgery are resection of the thrombose segment and reconstruction with a graft, um, or you can typically, you can just ligate these uh, vessels as well. Uh, Hannah, do you want to finish this off with a few more um, disorders of the upper extremity? Sure. We'll continue uh, by talking about complex regional pain syndrome. So there are generally three stages. In stage one, patients have pain out of proportion. They may have hyperesthesia, edema, erythema, or hyperhidrosis. In stage two, you can see this is the dystrophic phase, um, which usually is around months three to nine and can present with stiffness, edema, and the patients will have, by this point, altered blood flow and osteopenia. And then stage three, patients have increased stiffness and they'll have pale, cool, dry skin, and by this time point, typically have decreased pain. So when you get a bone scan for uh, CRPS, this will show increased periarticular uptake on the third phase. And phase one and two will show autonomic dysfunction. So the best tool for confirming diagnosis of CRPS is the third phase on a three-phase bone scan. Again, showing increased uptake and typically elevated uh, sweat and increased temperature, and then osteoporosis in about week three to five. These are difficult patients to treat, but I think require a lot of reassurance um, and frequent visits. So something that I often worry about when I'm in the ED is can we use epinephrine in the digits? So epinephrine is safe to use in the digits. However, if you suspect digital ischemia, um, you can use an alpha adrenergic antagonist like fentolamine to correct any um, temporary ischemia. And 
You usually inject about one to two milligrams locally in the area where you injected the epinephrine. Next, we'll talk about compartment syndrome. And remember the five P's of compartment syndrome, which are pulselessness, paresthesias, pallor, pain out of proportion to exam, and paralysis. So fasciotomies are recommended if the compartment pressures exceed 30 millimeters of mercury, or if the difference between the diastolic and compartment pressures is less than 30. So often we get these consults. If the patient is not is obtunded or not able to give a reliable exam, we'll uh, test the compartment pressures with a striker needle. So another indication is uh, kind of proximal limb revascularization. So if the patient has had usually about four hours of ischemia, you should start to consider a prophylactic fasciotomy. And these can occur after crush injuries or you know, arterial reconstruction. And then I think universally, people normally open the um, carpal tunnel when they're doing this, and you can consider opening Guillain's canal, but less common. And then infiltration of more than 100 cc's after an IV infiltrate has been associated with compartment syndrome. So oftentimes we'll observe these patients um, and just recommend elevation. And the decision for fasciotomy after infiltration is mainly persistent pain uh, even after elevation. Next is Volkman's contracture. And this is a flexion deformity that may occur after a missed compartment syndrome. So the muscles that are most commonly involved first is FCP and FPL, the deepest flexors, followed by FDS and PT, and then least commonly would be the superficial extensors. This will manifest weeks later as flexion at the elbow and wrist. You'll have pronation of the forearm, adduction and flexion of the thumb, the yeah, extension at the MPs, flexion at the IPs, and then loss of sensation from the, in the median ulnar nerve distributions. Uh, you treat this with physiotherapy followed by debridement of the muscle, and then you can perform a muscle slide and tendon lengthening procedure for select cases. And ultimately the patient may require tendon transfers um, and then free innervated muscle transfers for probably rare extreme cases. Um, you can perform Botox for spasticity after an anoxic brain injury. And then this will be followed by transfers of FDS to FTP. Then a few miscellaneous topics. So the best split thickness uh, donor site dressing is an occlusive dressing with a hydrocolloid polymer complex like duoderm. An opsite or tegaderm minimizes discomfort and a semi-permeable is favorable for infection and re-epithelialization. So for the next topic is hand transplant rejection. The skin is the component that is most likely to elicit an IgM or an IgG immune response that results in cellular destruction. So there's several different phases of rejection. So a hyperacute rejection, this occurs within minutes to hours due to preformed antibodies and causes thrombosis of the capillaries. So an acute, humor acute humoral rejection, this is an acute humoral rejection. This is also rapid. And it's an antibody-mediated rejection that occurs within days. And it's often treated with plasmapheresis and anti-B cell reagents. Acute cellular or T-cell rejections um, often are due to activation against donor antigens. And this can be about three to six months after transplant. Oftentimes, the team will increase the doses of the drugs. 
And then chronic rejection is both antibody and cell mediated. And then finally, for high pressure paint injuries, these have a very high complication rate and the risk of amputation is nearly 90% if treated non-operatively. So the lesson there is to often you know, take these patients to the OR. That was quite a, a potpourri of topics, but I think a lot of good information and thank you for joining us. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.